From the non-academic point of view, researchers live on another planet. Non-academics are never going to wonder um, in a job selection situation why you with a PhD are putting yourself forward for a non-academic job, speaking personally. They're just going to be relieved you decide to return to planet Earth. Researchers are geeky. They might be very clever. They might, I might be persuadable to believe that they could manage money because many of them um, have lived off quite frugal both personal and research budgets. But it's quite clear that you wouldn't want to go down to the pub with a researcher. A researcher can't write simple and concise English. A researcher can't persuade or sell. A researcher can't improvise. A researcher can't multitask. A researcher can't manage time or deliver to deadlines. A researcher certainly can't manage people. And researchers are awkward and disobedient, or at the very least, not team players. Now, that is the stereotype of the researcher and certainly the doctorally qualified researcher um, to the world out there. And it is a fantastic boon to you because you know, and I'm not going to take up precious time here telling you how wrong it is. There are so many bits of that that are wrong, it's just not true. But that gives you a fantastic opportunity when you, and responsibility when presenting yourself in the non-academic environment to really pick which two or three bits of that are just so untrue and make it very vividly untrue for the person who's um, selecting you. But this stereotype, it's not good enough to just say, oh, how ridiculous. Because sadly, there's actually, as with most stereotypes, some grains of truth in it. And those of you or perhaps I should say those of us um, who have some involvement in research, should think about how we're creating and perpetuating some of those. When I was in the final stages of my dissertation, um, I was encouraged, um, as I think many people would be, to get a senior practitioner to read chunks of it. And in my field, which was recruitment interviewing, I went to one of the most senior people who does that in the country, and I asked her if she would be willing to read chunks and comment, and she said she would. And it was only after, when I went back, to get her comments, that she gave me her impressions of her contacts with academia during many years of working life. She said she'd formed a very low opinion of academics and research. She said they mostly seemed very interested in themselves, in playing games to build up their own power positions and using language that was not understandable by other people. So while I put up the stereotype so we could all laugh at it, there's actually some truth in it, and that's a little worry. I want to move to the anecdotes now, and I just thought I'd walk you through, so far as time allows, some of the researchers, or people who at one point did a PhD, that I encountered um, in the course of my working life thus far. So I start at Cambridge, where I did my first degree in mathematics, and there's no hesitation uh, in my mind who I'm going to pick, who was a pure mathematics research fellow. And I and another uh, third-year maths undergraduate were picked out by the Director of Studies, and said we were going to be the first two undergraduates supervised by this particular research fellow. He thought it would work. He thought the two of us could just about cope with it, but we were to keep closely in touch with him in case it didn't work. And what I remember vividly is we went into Simon's study bedroom for our first supervision, and he was a kind of very hairy member of some biological species. And what I remember vividly was that there was a plate of uneaten spaghetti several days old under his bed. So that was one of my first impressions of what academics are like. I went and did a master's in statistics at Harvard, and this academic I remember there, Harvard had quite a theoretical statistics course, but they had one practical module. I suppose they thought they ought to have a little nod to the practical world. And I can remember this guy's name as well, uh, Douglas Zahn, 
from Florida State University, and he talked about doing statistics as a consultant. So he combined being a professor of statistics with doing statistical consulting for clients, and I think that sort of combination is a very common one. And he emphasized and burned into us the importance of practically going out to observe data collection actually, so that you had a clue what the real world was doing to assemble the data um, that you were then going to analyze. But that combination of combining a seriously academic career with a passion for practical impact and making a commercial income is quite a common pattern. Then I went into Whitehall, mostly in the Treasury, where I was for 10 years. Um, One group of PhDs there were the generalists. They were the people who had done PhDs in anthropology or Medici politics um, and who were now middle or very senior civil servants not using their PhD, not using the title and not using the PhD subject um, really as such but using certainly the very high quality thinking um, and writing skills um, in that particular environment. Of the other PhDs, the economists were worth noting. They were increasingly powerful over these decades in Whitehall I think of someone like Professor Stephen Littlechild, a very famous economist, um, who really personally restructured the whole of our electricity industry through privatisation. Absolutely enormous social and economic impact. And there were other specialists. I'll mention, I'm merging into my experiences from my headhunting career, uh, John Krebs, Lord Krebs, son of a very distinguished scientist, himself a very distinguished scientist, FRS. And I headhunted him to be the first chair of the Food Standards Agency. And I remember him saying to me, you do realise that my discipline is zoology and I don't know anything about nutrition or food. And I said, yep, no, that's absolutely right and we're not looking for someone who knows about nutrition or food. We do desperately need someone who, um, who is in a sense synonymous with scientific rigour and trustworthiness at the very highest level, who is interested and willing to take on a job with not only a very significant managerial component but a huge media and public trust, building public trust, because this was in the aftermath of mad cow disease and all those things. And he went and did that for five years. And also in my headhunting career, another academic I came across became a colleague, um, a social and political scientist called Gavin McKenzie, died a few years ago, who was at Leicester and then, I think, at Cambridge. And he kept trying. He was a senior tutor at a college in Cambridge and a very successful published and taught academic in social and political sciences. And I think he really wanted to be a vice-chancellor or or the next best thing. And after failing to get, getting close but failing to get a number of those, he said, oh, stuff that, what shall I do? And we persuaded him to become a headhunter. Um, And he spent probably the last 10 years of his working life as a highly successful headhunter. He more or less created academic headhunting, which is now quite a big business in this country. I don't suppose he would ever have predicted that or anyone could have predicted that. But he had enormous skills, relationship skills, as well as ability to understand academic motivations and judge the calibre of people's research and, and teaching and administration contributions that, that made him uh, you know, just something extraordinarily different. I've set up my own career advice business now, and one person who I'll just call Keith, one of my clients, um, 18 months ago, illustrates another career pattern, some parts of which I think are quite common. He started in the natural sciences and he went in, I think, yes, he did doctorate in natural in physics and went into one of the classic science-based, you know, BP or something like that, in their kind of research and engineering side. He then became a manager, a research manager. And in a 
move which is, I think, viewed from where I stand, quite common, though not far from universal, he realised he became more and more interested in the human aspects of both doing research and organisation um, and how little the natural science bit addressed that. So, in fact, he then changed at that point to do business studies and he became an academic. So he then left industry and he became an academic in a business school. And um, at the time that he was my client a year and a bit ago, he was a successful professor of strategy um, at a major UK business school. And in that sort of world, you kind of teach and research, you know, half the time or whatever and make as much money as you can, or depending on what you're interested in doing, um, with commercial clients and the other half. The reason he was seeing me in his mid-40s, because I try and specialise in people who want to change career sector or do something very different, is he was actually pondering, looking ahead to his 50s, whether there was any way he could have a living which addressed some of the things that just had not been touched by his working life so far. He grew up in rural Scotland. He was very fond of animals. A sense of the countryside and of certain bits of remote nature were very important to him. He'd actually also grown up on a farm. And he wanted help to think through, was there a way that he could make his career go in which farming and the rural side of things and a whole tactile content to his life could could become part of it? It's extraordinary, isn't it? But that's human life. That's, I mean, I hope some of that puts in context what you're wrestling with. Now, who knows what you'll be wrestling with, you know, 20 years down the track. It certainly isn't the case that there's one unique path. And I should lastly mention, of course, the academics who I've been working closely with over the last three years because they set up and run the doctoral programme which I've just participated in um, and supervised me. Um, Douglas Griffin, an American who studied philosophy um, and was so passionate about philosophy, thought he'd better go and not just learn German but live in Germany, which he still does, because how could you possibly do Kant and Hegel without actually going to live in Germany, seriously? not just for a few years, and he still lives in Germany. Um, He then built his career as a management consultant, mainly, which he still does. Um, But he is a visiting professor at the University of Hertfordshire. He was my supervisor, and they have a wonderful part-time doctoral program. And he has made come alive for me, if you like, the difference that Kant or not Kant makes to management, um, to organisations, and to very practical things um, in day-to-day life. And his fellow professorial colleagues, Ralph Stacey, and Patricia Shaw both exemplify um, academics really bringing um, radical, innovative thinking and making it come alive and inventing a professional doctorate programme for people like me that has been life-changing. So some advice on those rather ropey foundations. I think the conclusions I draw from the anecdotes are what a huge diversity, which is just going to get more during your working lifetimes compared to mine. Doctoral graduates are hugely multi-skilled, but I think you need to take responsibility for telling your story about your skills. Do not expect to be understood automatically, because what will be understood automatically is the stereotype. And do highlight which bits of the stereotype are spectacularly wrong for you. Don't just give a generic answer about, well, all PhD students are very good at X, Y, and Z, because no employer is hiring all PhD students. They're thinking about whether to hire you. And as you think how you're going to demonstrate that you, you, know, you are not the stereotype and you bring all these wonderful things, I would say it is key to use anecdotes skillfully, whatever your doctoral research training has told you. Anecdotes are very important in terms of creating memorable communication back on planet Earth. 
I know people probably want to ask, how do I get headhunted? Because as a headhunter, I'm constantly asked that. The, the answer to this is going to be extremely dull. I mean, first of all, just briefly, headhunters proper are paid sums in excess of £20,000 by organisations with jobs to fill that are for some reason hard to fill. And they are to be like detectives and go out and find the people to do that. There are also a wide range of recruitment agencies that are not paid quite that way and who basically work more on the concept of having books of people than trying to, trying to place people. So the brutal answer um, to, you know, to how to be, um, you know, be headhunted is you can do two things, and really you should do both. One is reduce the cost of finding you, and the other is be someone whom it is worth someone spending £20,000 for us to find. And I'd certainly say, do put most of your effort on the latter. Do put most of your effort on the quality of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But don't put 100% of your effort there. Do give us a tiny little bit of rainbow in the sky by which we might find you when you have built the talents and the reputation that will be worth someone paying that money to find. Everyone, I think, has highlighted contacts. I don't know whether Granovetta's study on finding a job has been cited but there's a very famous study, I think it's a PhD thesis actually, by Mark Granovetta. I think it's called Getting a Job. And it is a classic research text. And what it basically says in simple terms is the importance of what he calls weak ties to finding your job. And these are not the people who know you best. These are people who you may have only made a brief impression on and in some cases in his study had not been in touch with because people then didn't do proper networking, um, you know, for 10 or 15 years, turned out to be key later on to landing a job opportunity. So it is worth just thinking about that whole pool of people who you interact with, as people have said, and not, well, I don't know, you may use Facebook, you may use Twitter, I don't, whatever you do, I'm not even going to talk about that. But at least, you know, it's worth a day a year just thinking about what could you send by way of an interesting semi-personalised email that's not too long to people who you interacted with maybe some time ago. Because if you don't do it too often, and you do keep it short and interesting, and you do show some interest in what they're up to, they'll be very pleased to get it. Um, and those people could be quite important to you, including how you get headhunted five or ten years down the track. If you want to do that more properly, there's a book which I have no hand in writing or selling called And What Do You Do? by Barry Hobson and Katie Ledger. Um, and I can, if anyone asks, I mean, provide the, the details. Um, it appears not to be aimed at you, because it's about how to create a portfolio career. It appears to be aimed at people like me at my stage in life. Thinking about today, from my point of view as a headhunter, I think that, first of all, if you operate as an academic, you actually are running a portfolio life, um, something that's very individual and focused on you, with you know, your current research, your projects to get future research funding, your teaching, your commercial consulting, whatever else you may be doing. And if you don't do that and actually go into, well, if you go through the fallow period, you'll be running a portfolio life from what we've heard. And actually, if you go into IBM or Lloyds Bank or McKinsey, certainly the latest advice from people trying to peer into the future of work is actually you're best off from the beginning thinking you're still running a portfolio career. You're just going through a particularly high-risk phase where all your eggs happen to be in one corporate basket. But the skills are still relevant. So actually, if you ignore the fact this doesn't talk about academics but talks about portfolio career, I think this takes the whole network thing in a much more thorough way and has some real value to add there. Okay, to finish. I saw you've had some stuff about um, from actors. You've had a play and you had one of the workshops I think was done by someone from RADA. 
Having talked in these very careerist terms, I think it's also really important to recognise that in doing our work, there are other things that animate us than just thinking about things in very careerist terms. And I just wanted to close by reading you a couple of paragraphs out of a book from 1997 by the playwright um, and actor and director David Mamet. And it's written for actors. It's called True and False. The whole thing is a tirade against education, against what he regards as corrupting the profession of acting. It struck me, he's talking about actors and what motivates an actor, what he thinks should motivate an actor. I think, firstly, that there's something similar with what motivates perhaps an academic. But then, as a uh, headhunter, where I would criticise Mamet is that some of the people that he mocks, as you'll hear in a second, like the administrators, actually they have their own passions too. And, and they, you know, they are more like him than perhaps he realises. So it's about a couple of paragraphs. He begins, and he's addressing actors, particularly actors in school. You readers are of a generation that would like to stay in school. The world is, as usual, a frightening place to enter, for all save the precious few impaired by inherited security. There was perhaps for a time in this country a fairly secure promise of a career for a small segment of the bourgeoisie, and now even that is gone, and good grades and a little family money can no longer assure one of the sinecure in law or medicine. And further, for the player, that is, for the man or woman who is interested in a career on the stage, there never was such a security. You will encounter in your travels folks of your own age who chose the institutional path, who became the arts administrators rather than the actors, the casting agents rather than the writers. These folks chose to serve an institutional authority in exchange for a paycheck. And these folks are going to be with you for the rest of your life. And you actors and writers and people who come up off the street, who live without certainty day to day and year to year, are going to have to bear with being called children by these institutional types. You will, as Shakespeare tells us, endure the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes. It is not childish to live with uncertainty, to devote oneself to a craft rather than a career, to an idea rather than an institution. It's courageous and requires a courage of the order that the institutionally co-opted are ill-equipped to perceive. They are so unequipped to perceive it that they can only call it childish and so excuse their exploitation of you. Thank you. Thank you.